Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. Each episode, we speak with authors creating a variety of books. In this instance, we're going to look at a powerful essay directed at a serious social reality that we face every day, white supremacy. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly, and I'm talking with Professor George Yancey, Professor of Philosophy at Emory University uh, in Atlanta, whose book, Backlash, What Happens When We Talk Honestly About Racism in America, has just been published uh, by Roman and Littlefield. Professor Yancey, it's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to talk with you as well. So, um, I mean, you've written a book, you know, addressing a legacy of, of, of the abuse of African Americans that we live with to this day. But can you give us some background on, on the book? Because it, in some ways, as I understand it from reading the book, that this is uh, an extended, kind of an extended conversation that started with an essay that you published in 2015, a letter to the New York Times. Yeah, that, that's right. So what happened was I was uh, I wanted to, to do a series of interviews um, um, with philosophers who talk about the, the who, who talk about the subject of race, and uh, I was encouraged to do so after reading a series of interviews by philosopher Gary Gutting, who had interviewed um, philosophers of religion, uh, and I thought, wow, let's 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 talk about race. So we did that. We ran about one or two interviews. Uh, and they were so extraordinary in terms of the responses that we received that we did 19 um, of them in, in, uh, in, in total. And so I was supposed to write a concluding piece, and uh, Gary Gutting, in his interviews, decided to interview himself, and I didn't think I wanted to go that route. Uh, although creative, I, I thought that my interviews didn't address the issue of whiteness uh, with the kind of existential gravitas, political gravitas, that I wanted it to be addressed uh, in terms of how I wanted it to be addressed. So I decided to write this piece called Dear White America uh, that was published on December 24th, 2015. So in essence, uh, by Christmas morning, white people uh, around, you know, in the country as well as outside the country, uh, woke up to read Dear White America, which was this article that argued essentially that to be white in America uh, is to be racist. And it didn't mean that one was part of the Klan or neo-Nazi. Uh, the, the point was to say, look, there's something about being white and being historically positioned in contemporary America, which is a country founded upon white supremacy that privileges white bodies in certain kinds of ways. And that when we think about the way in which those bodies are systemically embedded within a white supremacist structure, what is the conclusion that we get from that? something like white people are racist. And of course, I went on to define how I understand racism. And that created, of course, this backlash. So in many ways, the, the title of the new book that just came out, uh, What Happens When We Talk Honestly About Racism in America, and then you have backlash. Well, that's exactly what happens. It's backlash, and it's white backlash in, in particular. And uh, this backlash, it took the, the form of a pretty vicious response to your, to your letter, yes? So oh, absolutely. In fact, um, it, it came uh, the, the the white racist vitriol came in the form of voice messages. Uh, it came in the form of letters written to me. It came in the form of postcards. It came in the form of white people um, on white supremacists or alt right websites that quote unquote discuss the the, the piece. Um, and uh, it, it was quite amazing to me, and by that I mean, I shouldn't say amazing, more like 
surreal um, because while I knew that uh, white folk would not be happy with the piece, I didn't expect uh, to receive death threats, to receive all sorts of very nasty, uh, perverse responses from what I call the white imaginary. I mean, it was as if I was pulling back a kind of repression of the, the white psyche and all of that vitriol was directed at me. So white people would actually sit down to write letters uh, in a world in which we rarely write longhand just to call me a nigger. So I've been called a nigger so many times, it's almost as if, as King Martin Luther King put it, it becomes your middle name or your last name. You know, I want to get to that, but I'm also curious, uh, in, in the letter, I mean, you do try to frame your argument about white privilege from a context of human imperfection. Yes. I mean, you compare it to sexism. I, I assume in a way to connect with the audience to some extent, to, uh, in the sense that we all have to look very closely at ourselves. A absolutely. White supremacy takes another form. But please, go on. I I'm curious how you frame the letter. A absolutely. So uh, to call it dear white America is already a salutation that suggests a certain kind of affective intensity. In other words, I'm trying to invite the, the white reader into this piece in the most uh, pleasant, uh, inviting way in which I can, hence Dear White America. And you're right, what I do is I thematize my own sexism. I, I dare to be courageous about my own sexism in calling myself out. I mean, it's, it's, it's typical, it's a kind of pedagogical uh, way in which I think about the world, in which I teach my students. It's, it's called parisia, which is a Greek word that means fearless speech. So I thought to myself, why not render yourself vulnerable? which if you look up that term, it means to be wounded. Why not publicly expose your own wounds to create the possibility for a bridge or to model for white people what I see as a form of truth-telling about myself, and by doing so, create a kind of mutual vulnerability. So that was sort of not just, I shouldn't say just the strategic way in which I went about this, but it was the way in which I think about uh, dimensions of love I mean, uh, for example, James Baldwin says that love takes off the masks that we wear, that we know we cannot live without. So he says, love refuses to wear the masks that we're afraid we cannot live without, but yet we know we must live with. Bell Hook says that love involves telling the truth to ourselves and sharing it with others. So there's this way in which I was embodying what Baldwin says, what Bell Hook says, as a way of of expressing my own humanity and the ways in which I am also part of a system that oppresses women. But unfortunately, there wasn't much uptake, or what philosophers like to say, it wasn't a very felicitous moment. If anything, white people took it as a, as a condemnation and as a way of name-calling, or as condemnation in the form of a, of a simple condemnation, not, not as a way of trying to raise their consciousness about their own whiteness. You talk, uh, and you've mentioned here, that this radical love. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, what, I mean, it's a concept I've always associated with Martin Luther King. Sure. Well, absolutely. In fact, uh, we, as you know, we like to sterilize, or as uh, Cornel West might say, deodorize uh, Martin Luther King. And uh, King, is, uh, King actually said that, um, he actually said that the majority the vast majority, in fact, was his phrase, of white people are racist, either consciously uh, or unconsciously. And that's the vast majority is pretty a pretty large number. So 
and this is a Martin Luther King who believed uh, in the, the you know the moral arc of the universe. This is a Martin Luther King who practiced non you know uh, peaceful nonviolent resistance. This is a Martin Luther King who talked about the beloved community, who was a Christian. So in many ways, I think this radical love uh, is certainly where I was coming from. In other words, I consider Dear White America to be a letter of love. It was a, it was a letter that said to white people, look, render yourselves vulnerable. Uh, don't be like Odysseus. Dare to release yourself from the mast of the ship and hear the voices of the sirens and step out. Uh, on the river with me, right? So that we can collectively um, begin to have a conversation where we're able to mutually transform ourselves. So yes, it was a radical form of love, a radical form of demanding that white people take inventory of the ways in which they cause pain in ways that they don't even understand. So in many ways, as Baldwin says, when he says to act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. I wanted white people to be in danger, which Baldwin sees as losing their identities. So I wanted white people to begin to think about ways in which they might lose or die to this thing called whiteness, which is creating so much problem in the US. I'm skipping around a little bit with your chapter, so forgive me. But in chapter three, Risking the White Self, what you what you seem to have done with that letter, as you put it, is you, you pierce the insulation and racial comfort of this sort of self-designated white innocence. Is that an accurate paraphrase of your uh, work? Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm actually pointing that out because I do want to get back to the chapter before that. And we talked this a little better. This is Dear Professor, and truly Dear the Insular Professor. Um, uh, it, it does seem that the analysis of this word, the, 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 the iconic power of this word, uh, we continue to have to deal with it. Mm, Absolutely. So just to speak to the first point, yes. So there's a way in which I'm saying that to be white in America, and I want to make, I want to make it clear that I'm not, I'm not being nasty. I'm not trying to do something like perform uh, reverse racism. I don't think that I have the power to do that. So I take a very historically grounded understanding of white supremacy. So there's no way in which given the history of white supremacy in America, Black people on that basis have the power to make their prejudices be operationalized in such a way that we can oppress white people. We just can't do that. So the letter was to call white people out of their comfort zone, to call them out of their innocence and say that your hands are not clean. They're dirty in terms of the ways in which your whiteness allows you to do things that doesn't allow me to do. But not simply that, but to show the way in which the white body is always already touching the black body or bodies of color. I mean, in fancy philosophical language, it's what I call uh, an ontology of no edges, where bodies touch themselves even as they appear to be separate, right? So it's to critique the neoliberal understanding of the white self or, or the self more generally. So yes, and so in doing that, in piercing that white innocence in trying to um, um, lift it up and, and sort of deconstruct its veneer, what happened was to be expected at one level, white people were angry, but I didn't expect the white vitriol. I didn't expect that someone would say, you know, let's put a hook, a meat hook in Yancey and then say, now use your imagination. That, I mean, that's perverse. 
one white gentleman wrote that I should, I'm writing this letter in order to sleep with more women, and I'm not going to be more graphic than that, but somehow I, I can put it this way. One white writer wrote that I wanted white women to perform fellatio on me. That's why I wrote this letter. But just imagine the kind of uh, distortion, the kind of perversity of consciousness out of which that comes. Imagine the kind of defensiveness that is there, right? I mean, this wasn't just about, uh, you know, hatred. This was a perverse, uh, deeply troubling imaginary that projected onto my body my efforts to write a love letter or a letter of love uh, to white people such that there was this incredible reaction that is deeply troubling. And the reaction, uh, as you make clear in the book, it centers around, uh, I think what you, you quoted in the book at one point, the paradigmatic slur, the N-word, which is an, essentially a kind of global epithet now. It's, 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 uh, you, you, you talk about how it's used around the world outside of cultures to kind of to diminish. Absolutely. And of course, I pull there from uh, Randall Kennedy, a Harvard professor, yeah, who, who talks about, not just say it, I mean, he, he talks about how it's, it's an epithet that generates epithets. So just as the Irish at one point were considered niggers by, England, by the English, so they were considered the, the niggers of Europe, or Palestinians are, are considered, you know, niggers of the, the Middle East, or Arabs are considered sand niggers. There, there are ways in which the term nigger degrades them, but notice how it's coming from uh, the imaginary of white people who created the term to apply to black people. So in many ways, you might say that to be black in America is to be a nigger nigger, right? Or to be black is to be black and to be, and to be considered a nigger is to be the lowest form of, of subhuman existence, right? And what is so incredible to me is the fact that this term still has powerful resonance, and not just resonance, but that white people who wrote to me are still using this term in the 21st century, right? So it's this horrible, uh, degrading, nasty, profoundly disturbing term that has been used to denigrate black people, to castrate black men, to lynch black people, to rape black women, that is the history of that term. So that term is dripping with black blood and white hatred. And yet, there it is, I'm being called that in the 21st century. In fact, on one white supremacist website, the individual wrote the following, and I'll just sort of say a few times, it was simply nigger, 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 nigger. And it just went on down the page, and that was the response to Dear White America. It's just an endless line of... Uh that epithet. For those who will listen to this, um, let, let me apologize for, uh, in some sense, uh, if they are traumatized by the term, let me apologize for uh, sort of reiterating the term and therefore sort of adding to that trauma. But here is the, here's the problem with that. In order to move forward with a discussion about race in America, which we have not done, which we did not do under Obama's eight-year eight tenure as president, and we will certainly not have that conversation under Trump's administration. We have to talk about that. If we're going to ever have that serious conversation uh, about race in American racism and American whiteness, there's no way we can escape that having that conversation without naming that term and without speaking it. Jumping to your final chapter, accepting the gift, if we, we use a metaphor of of you requesting white America to look into the mirror, uh, to look deeply into the mirror, 
it seems what you've uncovered is that they'd rather smash the mirror, if I, if I may paraphrase from you. Where, where does that leave us in today's America? Can a moral appeal like this bridge this chasm between black humanity and white insulation? Uh, good point. I think you're right. I think the metaphor is, 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 is quite appropriate. I mean, Baldwin uses it. He says, you know, he's sort of, you know, holding up this mirror, this disagreeable mirror uh, to white people. And that's what I was doing. But, you know, again, I tried to hold up a disagreeable mirror to myself to say, hey, look, Yancey, look at yourself in the mirror. You are a sexist, right? Which doesn't mean, you know, I'm Harvey Weinstein sexist. But nevertheless, I am, a, I am a sexist to the extent that I am a male in a society that predicates of my maleness power, the ways in which I've internalized pornographic imagery around women, the way in which I participate in the fragmentation of their bodies. This is the way in which I understand my own sexism. So I held that disagreeable mirror up to my own face. But you're right, when I held Dear White America up to white America, or to many white Americans, that mirror was smashed, right? Which means my words were not heard in the ways in which I want them to be heard. But, you know, it's not, it can't happen through simple moral appeal or through moral suasion. I don't think that's the way it's going to happen. I think that there has to be that. In other words, that is a, let's put it this way, that's a necessary requirement, but it's not a sufficient requirement. So what we really need is for white people to move outside of their insularity. And by that, I mean even their gated communities, right? The, the ways in which uh, they don't have black friends, the ways in which in, in, on Sunday morning, those churches are still predominantly, if not all white. So I think that what we need to do is that we need to convince white people that they, one, don't understand their, the limits of their own racism, and two, that they don't want to understand people of color or black people. So there is that fear of us that needs to be undone. But the way in which we do that is to put us in the same place, in the same spaces where we get to break down our assumptions about each other, right? So it seems to me it's not just a cognitive or moral suasion that has to happen. There has to be embodied interaction between us on the proverbial ground such that we are able to be vulnerable in the presence of each other. And by that, I mean in the embodied presence of each other. Well, I'm going to wind this down in a second. I just wanted to, um, uh, I, I also want to mention uh, that the uh, Professor Cornell West wrote the foreword to your book. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm wondering, I mean, this, this, this horrific response you got to this, I mean, what would you say to an audience that suggested, well, this is a sort of, you know, this is a fringe element. Um, and I think even in his forward, Professor West, while he gave you wonderful support, he also suggested that perhaps you gave only a small glimpse of glimpses of white courage, though in, the, in that final chapter, you know, there is some sense uh, of hope. Uh, you do list some of the responses that embrace your message. So it, it, did you just hear from the fringe or is this a frightening really look at, uh, at the America that we live in? Mm, good point. In fact, let me say that I was very thankful for uh, Cornell West uh, to have written that forward. It's a very powerful forward. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think he's right. I don't spend a lot of time uh, uh, theorizing or thinking about or delineating instances of, let's say, white people who, in fact, have put their lives on the line fighting for people of color or black people. He's right. He's right about that. Part of the problem, of course, is that just empirically, 
I got far more nasty white vitriolic responses than I did from white people who accepted the gift, right? And so that's just, it's just empirically the case. But again, Cornell's right. I mean, I could have explored, for example, uh, the work of Lillian Smith within that context, who was an anti-racist white. I could have explored, um, uh, you know, uh, some, given some space to Tim Wise or to other whites who seem to, to be enlightened about the question of, of whiteness. But here's the problem. For me, at the end of the day, the best that white people can be are, are anti-racist racists. So I would say that Tim Wise, while he does incredible work on anti-racism, is at the end of the day still a racist because he can't undo the internalization of all the racism that he has inherited from being a part of white society, but also he can't undo the institutional ways in which he's tied to American society. So at the end of the day, even if he does successfully at some level battle anti-racism, he still has to be a part of a system that oppresses me and then uplifts him. And that relationship is parasitic or dialectical. So there's no way out, as it were, right? So do I believe in hope? Well, if, if by hope we mean something like looking into the abyss and maintaining um, uh, 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 maintaining a vision that America can be greater than it is, well then of course, am I optimistic? By no means, because American history dictates that I can't be optimistic. And yet I'm careful that I don't use a conception of hope that lets white people off the proverbial hook, because it's easy for white people to hope rather than to fully tarry with or linger with the weight of their own racism. So for me, the real discussion has to happen between Anderson Cooper, let's say, on CNN, and the black pundits that he has when they come on, and they all agree that Charlottesville, what happened in Charlottesville was horrible. That's one way of thinking about racism. The other way in which we have to think about it is to have a, a serious critical discussion where Anderson Cooper says, look, I too am a racist. While not like the Klan or the neo-Nazis, nonetheless, I harbor conscious and unconscious white supremacist ideas, but I also, in virtue of my position within the American society that's predicated on white supremacy and white privilege, I too am privileged. My white life is valued in ways that yours isn't. And this is why you don't have an Anderson Cooper or white people running around saying white lives matter because white lives aren't under threat of nullification. I hear you. Um, professor, I think we're going to have to end right there. Look, it's uh, been a great pleasure to talk to you and get a chance to re read your book. Um, Backlash, What Happens When We Talk Honestly About Racism in America by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, professor Yancey, thank you so much for talking to you. Oh, it was wonderful, and thank you for those questions. And thanks to the audience for listening in, and join us uh, for the next PW Litcast. <laughs>